Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and you're listening to the Fairy and Fantasy class. Welcome to Fairy and Fantasy 28. Professor Olson discusses chapters 1 through 6 of the children's classic by C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Let's talk about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So, uh, <laughs> the place I'd like to start uh, is sort of where the story starts. Well, first of all, let there be no confusion on one point. Um, if you have a marker with you, get it out. If not, go home and find one. Turn your book on its side and, or like scratch with your finger out the number two here and put in marker number one in its place. This is the first book of the Chronicle of Night. There you go. Tara's rocking it old school back there. Yeah. <laughs> Number one on the side, exactly. Um, there, you will find two different orderings of the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, as they were published, this was the first book published. Um, and the original, that is to say, the correct order of the books is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Prince Caspian, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Silver Chair, Horse and His Boy, The Magician's Nephew, book number six, and The Last Battle, book number seven. That was how they were originally published. Much later on, they were resequenced to be put in chronological order. Um, I try not to be purist or dogmatic about very many things. I have talked about this before. Um, I feel rather strongly about this issue, primarily because I think very much these stories were, were not only published in this sequence, they were written in this sequence. And you can tell that they were written in this sequence. I've almost finished, we're on the very last chapter, reading The Magician's Nephew with my son recently. And I am telling you, if you read that book first, it's not going to have even 50% of the impact that it was designed to have as a story. Um, the uh, There is no replacement for that experience. I, could, I was sitting there watching the face of my son as he realized that's where that's why there's a lamppost there in the woods and I bet Jadis is the white witch right um, that book has its effect the effect that it has because it is book six not book one um, and the way that his ideas develop that is Lewis's ideas develop and unfold you can see him sort of pointing vaguely to a thing which he hasn't defined in one book and then working it out more in the next book out of sequence it's going to be illogical um, I just I think that these this series as if you consider it as one one long story is a far less effective story um, when they are rearranged in chronological order and I think that you lose Something and frankly, I think that you gain nothing um, by re, by redoing them in chronological order. They are not even easier to understand. They are harder to understand because inconsistent when you read them in chronological order. Um, that is, there are inconsistencies between the lion, the, the magician's nephew, and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, which are not jarring when the one is book one and the other is book six. <laughs> They're quite jarring. When book six is book one and book one is book two. Anyway, so. I had to say that. Now, <clears throat> no, if only C.S. Lewis had been as meticulous a world builder as Tolkien, we wouldn't have this problem. Oh. Yes, I agree. It's true. <laughs> it's true. I uh, was low, Matt. <laughs> 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 you know, this is. Some of you may, of course, know that C.S. Lewis and, and J.R.R. Tolkien were, were close friends and were, uh, you know, often read each other's works and were, you know, in a group where they got together and read their works aloud to each other, the works in progress, and discussed them. And um, uh, Tolkien never liked the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, 
and was not a big fan of them. Um, not for the reasons that many people, um, some people sort of uh, say it's because they're allegorical and he didn't like that. Tolkien knew as well as Lewis did that they were not, in fact, allegorical, and he didn't have a problem with that. What he objected to is that they're slipshod. Um, <laughs> Lewis is throwing in elements from all kinds of mythologies and all kinds of directions, um, and he's creating this well, it's not even a stew, Tolkien liked that idea of putting these elements in the stew and, and cooking a new stew. It's like a, this sort of bizarre tossed salad with weird ingredients <laughs> that don't go together. You know, that you have these like Nordic dwarfs and these Greek fawns and then freaking Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, he, it, to, to Tolkien, he just found this so incoherent, it just really bothered him. Um, and this is very much, you know, sort of speaks to the difference in personality and temperament of these two guys. Tolkien was so meticulous and such a perfectionist, why he almost never finished anything. Uh, because he just, you know, whereas Lewis, you know, was like tossing off more than a book a year at this point and being like, come on, Tolkien, just put it out there. You know, <laughs> it's not done yet. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, you know, they... they you know, they just didn't see eye to eye on this kind of thing. So anyway, um, we start, I start, as I was saying before, I, I want to start where Lewis starts, that is, in Terra Cognita. And I want to be thinking about the patterns here that we're beginning to see. We begin in the mundane environment, right, before we uh, find our way into the fairy other world. Um, and I want to think about this in the context of the... what. Uh, Terrae cognitae that we have been seeing uh, in the previous works, that is, in Lord Dunsany, in MacDonald, and in Tolkien. All of them provide us with this mundane frame world, uh, which contrasts with the world of magic that the story or stories eventually get into. Um, differences that you noticed here with Lewis's compared to MacDonald's or Dunsany's or Tolkien's? Jordan? Well, I don't know how much different this is from all of them, because all of them are similar with this, but this is not just, you know... I mean, other than Dunsany, who used London as the land on this is already somewhat tailoring to Geneva, because it's, it's ten miles from the nearest railway station, two miles from the nearest post office. There's sensitivity because London is under railway, and this is out of the way to begin with. So it, it's not familiar, even if it is, even if it is knowable. I think that's a really interesting observation because it is true that in one sense Lewis uh, kind of confuses the boundaries. Because you're right, that house, as the professor says, this is a strange house, and even I don't know everything about it. Right? There could be any. You know, maybe he considers it perfectly plausible that there could be doors to magical worlds in this house. Right? Perfectly consistent with what he knows, with what little he knows about the house. So I agree. The setting is already, in some sense, mysterious, and certainly told from the children's point of view. I mean, we have in that first chapter, in their conversations, especially with Peter's enthusiasm, about this strange and wondrous new realm in which they have been placed. We've fallen on our feet, no mistake, right? Um, in this house, and their exploration of the house as a strange land. Um, so I think that that's true. Also, I agree with you, it is isolated, right? Of course, that's why they've gone there during the Blitz, right? But it's, but it's very isolated from the rest of society. I also like to kind of look ahead briefly towards the transition into the fairy realm, we have this sort of interesting near reversal, right? Whereas before, such as, for instance, in Sir Orfeo, you go into the middle of the forest, right, in the middle of nowhere, and you go through a transitionary boundary, and you emerge in the middle of a kingdom. 
here we have it the reverse, right? You're in the middle of this great house, and then you go through the magical doorway, and you emerge in the middle of the woods, right? in the middle of nowhere. So I think that that's kind of, that that's kind of fun too. And again, another way in which we can see him kind of playing with that boundary, and with which I want to come back to later on, with a kind of mirroring of the two, which I think is interesting here, and which um, in some ways I think is a little bit similar to what we see in McDonald, but, um, but more, other things. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Are we talking just generally or specifically in terms of the boundaries? Uh, both. The boundaries are the thing that's suggested to me, but I think that we can say, well, we'll come back to that. I'm kind of getting ahead of ourselves. I want to think more about, about the mundane frame world first before we move on to see uh, what the fairy world is like. Um, what else do you know? Yeah. In most of the other versions, especially Lord Dunsany's, you get this description of how boring London is, how blah it is. With Lewis, we don't really get that because we get the understanding that it's London during the Blitz, and so I guess he wants us all to conjure up our own image, but kind of go like, okay, London during the Blitz, moving on, we're in the wilderness now. Yeah. In the professor's house, far away from everything else. Yeah, yeah, and of course, even that time, it's not like, oh, hold on, the boring, mundane world. I mean, it's during the Blitz, and this was actually kind of an exciting time, right? This was, I mean, not in a good way, but I mean, seriously, this was not like, oh, the normal, boring world, like, oh, hum, how can we escape from the ennui of our traditional experience, you know, like dodging bombs and fleeing into the wilderness, like, this happens every year. I mean, so yeah, it, it is different. I mean, and, and, and that I think does also enable for a different spin. Another thing i just like to, to point to briefly, which I think we're kind of almost taking for granted there, the way that Lewis historically situates this. I mean, Wooten Major is sort of a, 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 a kind of typical or stereotypical country village, right? We're not told exactly what time frame we're operating in. I mean, obviously, we're not highly industrialized here, but, you know, I mean, is this, like, early 18th century? Is this, you know, early 11th century? Really, it could be either, as far as we can see, I think. Um, so we're not given any clear context other than this is, this is a country village, probably in England, but we don't really know for even that, 100% for sure. Um, in, with, we get the London context in Lord Dunsany, but again, no specific sort of historical cues, right? Think about this London. Think about London in this moment. Um, and in George MacDonald, we get even terra cognita is itself a theoretical and in a sense, a fantasy world, though it is where we can assume there are familiar things in it, like the familiar nursery room downstairs interactions um, that would happen in any upper-class British home, um, almost any upper-class British home. She was a princess. But uh, anyway, um, here we get a specific situation, which of course would have been very compelling to all of his audience. You remember last decade, the Blitz? Okay, that's... That, that's what we're saying. This is, this is going to be something that every single person in his audience is going to be relating to. Not very young children, probably, but even they, of course, will have heard about it. Matt? I think they do have these like, shades of the whole oppressive mundane thing. Like, they, they spend their free time basically running around this house. It's mostly empty, and you know, it's got stuff that doesn't, like, people go all these empty rooms, and rooms that have been abandoned, and furniture sheets over it. And they're constantly trying to dodge this, this woman who's giving these 
these long, boring tours of the house. So, like, we, we get that impression. That, 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 that feeling is still there. It's just not the same degree as some of the other stories. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Jordan? We're going to have historical concepts. It's assuming the most precise of all of them, but there's certainly elements of it and say, well, definitely with the coal and the, the soot. <laughs> I mean, that, that's definitely not literally 11th century. That's a wooden major. You're just going to find a wooden miner on a map and you're pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, right, it's right near a wooden miner. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How hard is that to find? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, there's certainly a name like Wooten Major certainly does kind of guarantee that it's an English village. Uh, um, if you... Uh, if you don't love the name of English, the names of English villages, it's because you've never spent any time either driving around England or looking at maps. I just there's just nothing more delightful. Uh, you know, my favorite when I was driving around England was Nether Wapping. <laughs> <laughs> I just I, I just can't even tell you how happy you would be to like sign my mailing address as Nether Wapping. But anyway, <laughs> um, which I suppose is just south of Upper Wapping. Uh, I'm, I'm not ridiculing it. I genuinely find it delightful. I, I, it's, we just we just don't we just we're not as cool in America. That is obviously true. Anyway, um, one other theme that I would point to that I think is really interesting and comes out very strongly in Lewis. Though I think when we look back on it, we can see that it's been a theme now for a while, and that is. <coughs> One thing that the mundane worlds have had in common is an explicit resistance to fairy and to magic. A resistance um, in belief, a resistance in, uh, in, in, in basically in recognition of the existence of these other possibilities. Of course, we can see this, um, and, and I would point out, of course, this is a shift from both the medieval poems and from Andrew Lyne. As we saw throughout Andrew Lyne, there's nobody in Andrew Lane's story who's particularly surprised when one of these magical things, right? Fairies show up at the christening. Not only is nobody surprised, we've sent invitations, right? Talking bear shows up at the door, invite him in by the fire. Naturally, that's what you do, right? So, I mean, there's, there's no... Um, we just don't get... It, it is not a major theme in Lane's story. Like, I cannot comprehend or I refuse to accept the possibility that magical creatures and things exist. It's just not a major theme. Whereas we've seen that persistently in these later works. Um, in, in, the, in, in The Wine, Lewis, and the Wardrobe, we can see pretty clearly, in, in, and I'm thinking especially of the conversation between Peter and Susan and the professor, right? Um, you know, that they, that is Peter and Susan, are operating under the assumption and they are, they're not only operating under the assumption that magic doesn't exist, they are completely taking it for granted that all sane, grown-up people will also have, will also share that belief, right? And this is why they're so taken aback at how the professor responds to them. I'm thinking uh, in the new and inaccurately numbered edition, page 51, when the professor turns to Susan in the middle of the page and says, and what do you think, my dear? Well, said Susan, in general, I'd say the same as Peter. But this couldn't be true. All this about the wood and the fawn. That is more than I know, said the professor. And a charge of lying against someone whom you have always found truthful is a very serious thing. A very serious thing indeed. And then she suggests, maybe, you know, like, you know, Susan is trying to be gentle, right? The professor is not madness, you mean? No, she's not mad. 
But then, said Susan, and stopped. She had never dreamed that a grown-up would talk like the professor and didn't know what to think. Logic, said the professor to him, half to himself. Why don't they teach logic at these schools? There are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, or she is mad, or she is telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies, and it is obvious that she is not mad. For the moment, then, and unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. Now, what I, want to, what, I, what I think is really interesting about this is not only the establishment of these presumptions on the part of people who are immersed in the mundane world, most people, not the professor apparently, um, <laughs> that these things cannot possibly be, that it is correct to exclude from possibility the idea that, this, that, that Lucy's story might be true, that a magic kingdom could actually be on the other side of the wardrobe um, with fawns and witches and whatnot. Um, so that's, that's one thing. And we've seen this kind of thing before, right? We've seen it with Noakes in Smith of Wooten Major. We've seen it with Ludi in The Princess and the Goblin. Right? Both of them have that same kind of presumption. Now, Ludi doesn't exactly completely disbelieve in all things. She believes that the goblins exist. But she certainly is incapable, we're told, of believing in the grandmother upstairs. The actually, obviously, uh, and much more thoroughly magical um, thing. And even Curdy, of course, has a difficulty with it. What I think is also especially interesting here is Lewis's response to this. How, what is the professor's counter to their presuppositions? Yep. He thinks that they are being irrational because they, they have information about their sister, they have information about Edmund, but they don't have any information about this other world that Lucy says exists. And so it, it's a lot like in The Princess and the Goblin where they, they cannot believe, but they should because they should know that Lucy is a princess and, <laughs> and, and, and is, t- is not prone to, you know, to making up stories like this. Yeah. I mean, the parallel between Lucy and Irene there is, is quite close. And certainly the arguments being made to Peter and Susan about her here are quite similar to the arguments that Curdie's mom makes to Curdie about Irene. Right? Um, you're, you're making a very serious claim that you're assuming that she's telling lies. <coughs> you're assuming that she's making stuff up. You know that she wouldn't do that. Um, and what it, re- what it rests upon is not saying, you have insufficient faith in stuff you don't have information <coughs> about, but rather, you are being too overconfident in things you have no information about. You are saying, Curdy, that you believe it is impossible that she really has a grandmother who provided for her, protected her, and guided her, just because you didn't see her when you were up there. Even though, of course, the theory of the grandmother explains things that you cannot otherwise explain. And you also cannot explain why Irene, whose character you know, would do that and say that. But yet, so for you to assert the grandmother is impossible is for him to state in blind faith that which he has no evidence to support. That which he can't prove. And that which is in fact inconsistent with much of the data that he has. And the professor takes a very similar line. Right? If you are saying that it's not possible, as as exactly what he says to Susan at the beginning of the passage I read, this couldn't be true, said Susan. That is more than I know, said the professor. 
That is, what the professor has that Susan and Peter don't have is a willingness to recognize that he doesn't understand everything. And therefore, to operate on that basis and say, let us consider the evidence that we see. But again, this, this sort of drama, are you willing to be open-minded about this? Can you possibly accept something beyond the mundane world? This is a, this is a, we, I think that we can see this as a concern of the modern literature where it was not, like that is of the 20th century literature, where we did not see it in line and we did not see it in the medieval works. Nobody questions. Lanfold doesn't is, is not thinking like, oh, I can't tell anybody about my magical fairy wife because they'll never believe me. They'll think I'm insane. No one ever does that. No one questions. When Herodotus wakes up, I mean, look, if anyone had reason to doubt anybody's sanity, Herodotus, that was bad, right? Orfeo doesn't doubt it. This is why he deploys the troops to form up and try to protect her from the coming of the fairy king on the next day. In, the, in fact, in Montpau, the, the entire point is that he's worried people will believe him if he tells them. That, that would be really bad if people believe him. Yeah. Inflating his own reputation. Yeah, e- exactly. Exactly. Yeah, the whole premise of the boast that he's not supposed to make. Um, it, it is premised upon the idea that people are not going to believe him. Um, and that he therefore will be exposing her. If there were no threat of anybody believing him when he said it, then she wouldn't be in any danger. He'd just be in danger of lowering his own reputation by people thinking he's a, he's, he's, he's a moron, right? Um, so yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think that we, we, this, this seems to be really a quite, um, a quite new concern. Um, now, thinking about the representation of the other world, here we get into some of those sort of mirroring things uh, that I was alluding to before. When Lucy gets to the Fawn's house, what does she find? I love his bookshelf. <laughs> Nips to come, and their ways. <laughs> yeah, Nips and their ways, yeah. yeah that's, I don't want to read that one. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, Fawns are from Mars and Nymphs are from Venus, you know. That's <laughs> like a, seriously. It's, it, obviously, isn't that like transparently like a relationship advice book, oh. right? Yeah. But anyway, what else does he have apart from nymphs in their ways? Uh, man, the myth of man. <laughs> is man a myth, right? But in monks, gamekeepers, and a study in popular legend. A study in popular legend, right? Exactly. Even the questions that he asks at first, as she is there, suddenly finding herself in this wood, which doesn't seem obviously magical. This is not like Miss Cubbage being lifted up by the dragon of romance and transported to, to this obviously, you know, in, in an obviously magical means to an obviously magical place. She has stepped through a wardrobe into a wood, which is peculiar, everyone must admit. But when she gets to the normal, it looks like a normal wood, it's snowing. There are two things that are abnormal about it. What's abnormal? There's a fawn. That's pretty, you know, yes, the first is the fawn. There's this goat-legged fellow with a tail. Though you're a fawn, what does he look like? He's got He's got packages in his hand and an umbrella. It looks like he's just come back from his Christmas shopping, we're told. In other words, apart from the fact that he has, you know, horns and the legs of a goat, it looks like a perfectly mundane situation. She knows right how to place it. Now, of course, it turns out that she's wrong, not just because he happens to be a fawn, but he's not doing his Christmas shopping. It is never Christmas, right? So there's, of course, a kind of irony in how she's wrong about that. But she, but it's, it's not completely alien. There is indeed a reflection of her world. What's the other thing? 
The lamppost. The lamppost. There's a lamppost in the middle of the woods. <laughs> now that's weird, and that suggests all is not quite normal here. But again, notice what's abnormal is the intervention of a normal thing in the middle of this magical land. That is, lampposts are perfectly mundane. It seems to be a lamppost just like lampposts. I mean, she doesn't notice anything weird about the lamppost apart from the fact that it's in the middle of the woods. Right? Um, so I think that that's... That, you know, and then, of course, his conversation with her. Are you, in fact, human? Right? He says, with some skepticism. And both she and Edmund have that same experience of sort of speaking at cross-purposes, as Edmund does with the witch, too. You know, she says, what are you? And notice how he answers? He says, I don't know. I'm at school. <laughs> that is, what is the question that he's answering? What do you do? Yeah, what do you How do you identify yourself? Like, what's your job, basically? Like, the, the proper answer to that would be, like, you know, I'm a... Student. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a student. Like, what do you fill out in the occupation line in government forms, right? I mean, that's how he's... That's how he's... That's how one identifies oneself, right? It's like, I'm at school. She's like, no, but what are you? He doesn't have any idea that she's asking what species are you, right? Leading her to say, in one of my favorite lines in that chapter, I see that you're an idiot, whatever else you are. Um, But but again, so we see them speaking at cross-purposes. And again, we see the, the resistance of the mundane people sort of ironically reflected in the resistance of the magical people when they get in there, but they're not really sure uh, and that, of course, and we see also this sort of impulse towards mythologizing that Mr. Tumnus has, right? When she says, I came in through the wardrobe in the spare room, and he gives that delightful speech about the, the, the city of wardrobe, right? In the land of spare room, right? Where eternal summer reigns in the, in the land of spare room. In other words, he is thinking of her world as the magical world, and his is the normal one. If only he had studied his geography harder. <laughs> but it's too late now. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um, so that's what I was referring to before, but this kind of mirroring, and I think it sets up a really interesting... It's not just that we have this magical world operating independently, and these mundane people are being put into it, and everybody else thinks this is perfectly normal. We have this, like, frontier situation where we have a magical world and a mundane world not exactly looking over the border at each other because neither of them is normally aware of each other's presence. If anything, of course, the Narnians are more aware of the mundane people's presence, and at least they have that category, right? Of, you know, humans, you are, you are a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve. And the witch, of course, uh, we, we can tell not only do they know that, or at least suspect, that humans actually exist and are not mythic, but that the witch is anticipating that not only do they exist, but someday one will come. This is why she pays fawns to, to be here on the border and be on the lookout for any children and capture them and hand them over to her if he meets them. Right? So we know that there is some anticipation there where there isn't anticipation on the other end quite. Yeah, true. It, it, it's kind of like in the grocery store, you could have a pixie trap to keep going on your cake or something like that. You keep going on your milk, and we're acting plausibly accurate. Anyway, yeah, more accurate to the stories. But, you know. Yeah, I mean, it is. Yeah, I mean, that is interesting, sort of the anticipation of fairy, the relics of the knowledge of fairy that we can see remaining in Wooten Major, even in the consciousness of people like Noakes. Uh, compared to the awareness of the human world in the minds of people like Mr. Tumnus, 
is a kind of an interesting parallel. Um, but, but it's not quite fair to say that the mundane world, that is our world, uh, you know, England during World War II, does not have any anticipation of the other world either. Because they do. How? Where do they get it? Is this privileged information from the sixth book that got... <laughs> no. Okay, no, okay. No. You, don't, you totally don't need book six to know this. Peter suggests, uh, just as when Mr. Tumnus meets Lucy, he's never seen a human being before, he wasn't sure that they existed, but when he meets her, he has a way of processing this. So the kids, when they get in there, also have a way of processing what they see. Remember the robin? Oh. Robins, well, you know, but robin, you know, they're always good birds in the stories. That is the stories that they have. And of course, the same should be true of fawns. Right? Different stories, as Tolkien would be quick to point out, but stories nevertheless. Fawns are not out of nowhere. If you've read the right stories, you'll be familiar with fawns. And you won't need Mr. Tumnus to tell you that they dance with nymphs in the moonlight. Because you can read that in a wide array of classical and pastoral literature. We talk about this all the time. This is even more clear. Mr. Tumnus is not very clearly coded in his name. not so obviously coded uh, as many of the others. In other books, when we meet other fawns, almost all of them have Greek names because these are, from, these are figures from Greek mythology. Um, so I, this, that, there, there are stories. The, the names that they're given, the dryads and the naiads, as we are explained what they are, the dryads being the, the nymphs of the trees and the, and the naiads being the nymphs of the streams and rivers. Those are, those are from Greek mythology. So, if you've read the right stories, you will know what to expect, and your expectations will be met. Just as when as I will allude forward illicitly for the second time, when they meet Father Christmas, that is Santa Claus, they're also going to know what to expect. And they're not going to have a hard time pegging that either. Now, so I think that that's, again, another way in which we can see our myths and stories anticipate their world, just as apparently their myths and stories relate to ours. And that's kind of interesting. Um... What else, thinking about Mr. Tumnus, the fawn, what else, what else, I mean, he, he's a kind of an interesting figure to meet first, right? We don't get, I mean, we talk about sort of the mundane trappings, his umbrella, his parcels, um, the tea that he brings her home to. There's nothing magical, again, apart from the goatee factor, there's nothing strange about it there's nothing strange or magical about it other than, again, that the fact that it's that he's got those goat legs in his tea until he starts playing his instrument and she seems to be lulled into sleep. There is no uh, there is no magical atmosphere to it. Um, what do you make of the witch? You shouldn't leave entirely w w without talking about the witch. We've seen witches before. 
we've seen children eating candy <laughs> provided in some sense by witches before. Yeah? She seems like the first really alien thing they encounter in fairy, the first book alien thing, and I guess dangerous thing they can't understand. She's completely non-mundane in every way. And what cues do we get for this? On the one <laughs> hand, she's she's more mundane than Mr. Tumnus, right? I mean, all of her extremities appear to be more or less human. Guess we don't see under the robe, so her feet, who knows? But, uh, you know, and she was probably wearing shoes. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, she seems more human than the fawn. But I agree with you. I mean, I'm not, I'm not at all disagreeing with you. She is, I think, she does come across as more alien. Once you get past the goat feet thing, Mr. Thomas is a great guy. <laughs> a normal guy. <laughs> right? The witch is never just a normal person. What do we see? What are we shown? What's different about the witch? There are two immediately obvious physical things about her that are different. Uh, one thing that struck me with her is that even though she's bundled up in fur, she doesn't seem cold. So I guess the not being affected by the environment. Yeah, she, she's, she certainly seems perfectly at home here. That is in the environment where, where Edmund is standing there shivering. Stephanie? Oh, physically, she's unnaturally pale like the snow, and her mouth is very red. Yes, her complexion. Her complexion is not the complexion of a normal living person. She is as, her skin is as white as snow. Not... In a good way. Right. <laughs> but, it's, but that's interesting. In fact, doesn't it, the description of her sound kind of similar to the description we've gotten of beautiful protagonist damsels in some line stories? Right? The pale, pale skin and the, the bright, bright red lips... Um, but yeah, the way that it's presented, this is not attractive. This is not good. This is not nice. This is not human. A real person should not have that kind of that kind of compassion. What else? Something else he notices right away. Taller than any woman I've ever seen. Yeah, she's like seven feet tall. <laughs> That's a cue too. She's not normal. Whenever we see, oh, she's gigantic. What might we expect her to do? Eat children. <laughs> we have lots of reason to suspect that she's going to eat Edmund. Instead, she feeds him. It's worse. It's worse. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, though, again, interesting that you know we see the an interesting kind of. Reversal again, in a sense, of the Hansel and Gretel story. Hansel and Gretel, for, for Hansel and Gretel, the cake and the candy is perfectly good, normal, well, I was going to say wholesome, except, you know, not. But anyway, uh, perfectly good, normal, edible cake and candy, but it is the lure into the trap. Here, the candy is the trap, right? Um, and the witch is the lure, not the, you know, her, her, her hospitality, her welcoming, um, her expressed fondness for him um, is the lure, and the candy is the trap. Um, and we see him snared by the candy. Um, 
conservatives to money, which means it's debatable whether it qualifies as a It was not until I was in college that I actually learned what Turkish delight was. Of course, when I first had these books read to me when I was seven, I always sort of assumed it was some kind of turkey. Actually, I <laughs> in some sense, and I'm like, really delightful turkey. It was always what I realized I, I pictured, and it wasn't until I was in college that I realized what Turkish delight was, and I was kind of shocked, actually. It was nothing like anything that I had pictured. Um, if you don't know what Turkish delight is, it's like cubes of gelatinous, like, softer, much softer than jelly bean, but like uh, sweet and gelatinous, covered with powdered sugar. Um, they do it, they, 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 they do Turkish delight properly in the film. Like, well, he's actually eating Turkish delight. You can see it's very gooey Turkish delight that he's eating, which I think is a good choice. Um, I, the concept of eating two to three pounds of even perfectly non-enchanted Turkish delight makes me feel sick. <laughs> uh, and I have a pretty high tolerance for sweet things. Anyway, um, so, but I, th- I think this is a very... It's also, it's kind of exotic, right? Um, even the name of it, is, it, it sort of suggests a kind of exoticism, and I think that that's part of, part of the choice there. Um, and it's popular around Christmas time? Yeah, it is popular around Christmas time. Um, it's always around Christmas time in Narnia. Just never Christmas. Uh, okay, I, I thank you for your patience with being late and other things today. Uh, see you on Wednesday under hopefully norm, more normal circumstances. That's all for this time. Next time, Professor Olson continues with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, chapters 7 through 11. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.